So if you could go back to a time in your life, when might it be? And if you were to go back, would it be to remain there? To change something then so things might be different now? To say something you wish you had said? Or to take back something you were sorry you spoke, maybe in anger? We often look back to think about where we have been, where we are now, and where it is we would like to be for ourselves, for our families, for other associations. Reflection, it is a good thing. Getting stuck in the past, well, that can be a dark and isolated place, a place that can ultimately separate us from reality. And in this sense, reality, I'm using the broad sense of being defined as being real. I think that the ancients, those from thousands of years ago, had a lot less of a problem with reality than we do. They did not separate things the way we do. Everything was real, and what was real was everything. This was not a matter of enlightenment necessarily because I do think that in their own way they were enlightened. They were very much enlightened. To them though, the physical, the spiritual, the mystical, the magical, the psychic, and the cosmos all were one. In each was the other. The fullness of creation was in a grain of sand and the truth is, that's something today that quantum physics and scientists and string theory studies are proving to be more and more true with each passing day. But there is a difference between intuitively knowing that the universe exists fully in the smallest particles and then in practically applying the source, the meaning, and the nature of things such as an eclipse of the sun intuitively can be something quite different than from what a psychic or rather a physical understanding of an eclipse of the sun actually is. The same might be said of a supernova or an exploding star. And so intuition can go just so far sometimes. Still, eclipses Supernova, whether in ancient or modern times, do elicit and provoke a response from us. And these responses, just as then, now, give some insight into how we interpret the world, the cosmos, the spiritual, the psychic, and the mystical. We just went through the end of the world. Did you notice? And if you were to go back now that the apprehension is gone, if only from all of the noise that surrounded it, and look at the articles, look at the things that were written by the people that were writing, and you can learn a lot about people based on their interpretation of what they expected was going to take place. And that's the way it is. We see things 
that are as much based on our experience and our expectations and longings as they are on any hard, specific, scientific data. Which, truth to be told, except for Brian, most of us don't have such a great grasp of. Pick up an article from any scientific journal, and if you're like me, it's not going to be long before you're struggling to get through something in the magazine. Most of the time when I pick these things up and I start reading, I am literally left in the experiential dust of the past that clings to my sandals just as much as dust clings to sandals from a long journey. So today, when we read Isaiah, we're reading about people who lived way in the past, somewhere between the 800s and 500s before the Common Era, that is, before the birth of Christ. So we're back 2,500, 2,800 years ago. There is nothing in the United States of America that even comes close to that age, except for the redwoods that I can think of, and some rock formations. And then Isaiah, it gets further complicated because Isaiah was not written all by Isaiah. Isaiah is broken up into three basic sections at least. There's Proto-Isaiah, which are chapters 1 through 39. Then there's the second, Deutero-Isaiah, which are chapters 40 through 55. And Trito-Isaiah, which are chapters 56 through 66, which were written sometime after the exile of the Hebrews. And it is from that third section that our reading comes this morning. And the poet who wrote this, perhaps one who was in the line of the students that followed Isaiah, this poet is looking back, way back, at promises of early creation and the evidence of those creations in their day coming out of exile. They are not. He is not. She is not. The poet is not looking forward to the future and the birth of the Messiah. In Isaiah, the great light that they are talking about that arises is the sun rising over the new Jerusalem. They're returning home to the new Jerusalem. It is the same light that burned in the mountains in Sinai when God spoke to Moses. It is a look backwards by the poet to the promises that God made in the covenant of the past with the Hebrew nation to see the promise that the poet believes is coming true today. Here it is. Finally, just as God said. And it is such a remarkable time that all of those, according to the poet, all of those from around the ancient world in that sixth century before the common era would be drawn to and attracted to this great and marvelous city of God like fans to Woodstock. Everyone from the tribe of the camel Bedouins in the Median to the Queen of Sheba, who would return her followers as once she did during the time of Solomon, to the Assyrian flocks associated with the Ashbur Nepal and the cities of Kedar and Nebaioth. In other words, Jerusalem would be, again and as never before, the center of the universe to which all would be drawn. No mention of Messiah. It was the new Jerusalem, the gleaming city on the hill, the city of God. This was the vision of the poet in Isaiah. These were his or her terms. 
And as the poet used the writings and stories that preceded his or her times to create this narrative, so too did the evangelists and the other writers who would follow centuries later. They would see a different prophecy in the writings of Isaiah, a vision that effectually, we started out, somebody said we started out with skippy music. It was a vision that skipped right over this city of God, Jerusalem prophecy, to the foretelling of what was to be delivered to this world and universe and cosmos in the manifestation of God in the birth of the child, Jesus the Christ. This is what they looked back to. The real prophecy had finally been fulfilled. In other words, Isaiah was just a pointer, the best who was yet to come, but the poet didn't know it then. Still, there is much difference in the way that the evangelist looked back to understand the nature of Jesus, wrapping the prophecy with the present, the reality as a sum of parts of all of creation, elevating Jesus in ways that stars followed him. Magi came from the east, and a king murdered a generation of infants to protect his reign. There's a lot going on there. And it is only in Matthew, only in Matthew that the Magi are mentioned. And they're not numbered, by the way. Nowhere does it say there were three. We somehow come to think that we're three, but in those days, Magi generally traveled in groups of 12, historically speaking. And why three? Why just Melchior and Caspar and Balthasar? Perhaps because there were just three gifts? Was it part of some other legend or story? No one, and I mean no one, is sure. And notice how casually astrology is woven into this, referred in the writings of Matthew. It's a science that has often been condemned by religious, but here, the use and reference of the astrologers seems as common and accepted as referring to shepherd, shepherds in field where they lay. But the parallels of looking back to see the present, the coming of those from the east and the west, and the north and the south, the gifts, the change in the astrology, the interpretation of dreams and the promises, it is easy to see how ancient writings of Isaiah and others were used to elevate the surroundings and the events of the birth, the life, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were used to do this. This is what they meant. To the evangelists writing these gospels well after Jesus died, and for Matthew, somewhere around the end of the first century to be writing his gospel, it is important to remember that the whole purpose of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, was not just to pick it apart for facts. It was to tell the whole story in a way that everything was one and one was everything. Yet here we are, 2,000 years later, stuck in the narratives that reveal less and less of their historical and scientific assurances. And at the same time, here we are afraid that to make adjustments in our day to better understand the past so that we can move forward seems to be the course at times. 
Are we holding our breath for confirmation? It has to be true. It has to be true. There were three magi. I know there were three magi. And there was a star. And the star came up. And the magi came. And Herod did this. And everybody did this. And the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know where it went. But we know that they had it. I'm sure they used it for good reasons. Are we holding on like that? Are we afraid that to make any adjustments in our day to better understand the past so that we can move forward is going to produce results that are just too fearful? Is it fear that holds us back? And if so, is that fear grown so great that it now has taken the message of Christmas, Advent, Epiphany, and molded it into a quaint fairy tale from the past and a modern juggernaut of commercialism and near-idolatrous worship of mythical events and pagan symbols such as the Christmas tree? And then what happens to reality? The reality that God is in all events, that God is present in all ways, that God always has been from Moses to Jesus and more and before, and that strictly packaging Jesus forces more and more of us to embrace Jesus in our lives differently, helping us so that we can reflect on our past and asking for his help in moving forward trying not to listen to the voices that rise up in protest on knowing that Jesus is an ongoing revelatory way that has to be followed in this direction, of being accused of not being faithful if we have personal relationship with Jesus and with God in ways that are revealed to us today. Being criticized because we don't accept everything as is, as it is written, as it is told, and as it was thousands of years ago and more and will be forever and ever and ever. The Epiphany, the visit of the Magi, is the day, as I said, that celebrates the revelation of God the Son as human being in Jesus Christ. It is the day that the Magi and Herod, according to Matthew, recognize this baby as king. The manifestation of God in the world in Jesus the Christ. We look back to this time and we are appropriately awed. But as I said in the beginning of these comments, sometimes we look back to see where we have been where we are now, and where it is we hope to go, or at least how to be on the way to wherever it is we are going. Both of these readings look back, even as they were written, they were written about the past within the present, they look back, and among the many lessons of these readings are different ways of reflecting on the past, considering the present, and prayerfully looking for appropriate actions to take. Just as in the poet in Isaiah or Matthew looked back to reflect on what was at hand, both laid down the groundwork for going forward. They each had dreams and hopes and aspirations based on what was and what they believed would be. What was for you? What do you hope will be? What are your dreams? What are your aspirations? None of these writers seemed ready to settle for things as they were, if you read it carefully. Actually, it seems that none of them wanted things to remain the same. It was rather that they saw these great changes as epiphanies, events that were to change their lives and the course of reality, not what we think it is, reality which included but was not limited to their history or science or even their politics. It was 
a reality that was and is cosmic and includes God in every star and particle of stardust of which life began. So the question for me, for us, maybe for you this morning, is uh, have we lost our cosmic? Anybody see my cosmic? And what is our epiphany? Is it everything is just fine if people just leave me alone? Just leave me alone. Everything will be fine if people will just do what I wanted them to do when I wanted them to do it. What are we ready to do differently as a result of the birth of the child Jesus and his teachings and his life and his death and his resurrection? It's not just what we are going to believe, but what are we going to do connecting belief and science and physical and cosmos, and mystical, and more based on Jesus and God's presence in our lives. What do we do based on God's presence in our lives that makes us different? How will we parse Jesus from this or that, or will we? Or will we see him and God in spirit in everything? You know, they say that the bush on the mountain that day, that Moses was in the mountain, it was on fire and God spoke from that fire. Well, is that so hard to believe? If we went outside and brought in a leaf from a tree and held it in our hands, at a subatomic level, aren't there electrons whirring about an atom at the speed of light? And if we converted that into some kind of energy, wouldn't it burn up into a crisp in our hands? Is it so hard to believe that a bush is alive with the spirit of its life and the cosmos and the energy that surrounds us? And if we can even come close to thinking about that, can we find it elsewhere more easily? So in each of the cases of this morning's readings, the epiphanies referred to, they were hugely altering in terms of life. These were cosmic events. You want to talk meteors, you want to talk asteroids, you want to talk eclipses, these were in those categories and greater. They were not just about tithing or attendance, but hugely altering in ways that they were open to folks beginning to see their dreams without trying to control the outcome and live into the awe of the possibilities. There was no way that the poet in Isaiah could know what was next. There was no way that Matthew could know what was next. They just lived into it with their reflections, their presence, and their dreams. So do we live into it with everything we have? I don't. I'm trying. I don't know how to do that, but I'm trying. And what do we hold back? I ask myself all the time, what am I holding back? Do we know what it is we're holding back? Do we know how to let it go and turn it over to God and to ask for help? Do we live into this epiphany in all the ways that make it clear to us that we are ready to break from the security of what once was, packaged and defined nicely, keeping our sights in reverse to a time and a place that we would like to return and recreate as idols of some past, or are we ready to do the hard, difficult work of being faithful in new times of change and a response to the future? Are we ready to encourage the Boy Scouts of America to include girls in their midst and take on that fight.
that every bit of energy that some of these organizations have against any change will use to stop you, me, you. Are we ready to respond to that difficult work of being faithful in new times of change with a response to the future, with a life and a church that calls us out of our comfort, away from our safety, and into the faithful continuation of an Advent season that always is, of an epiphany that needs to be always in our hearts, always in our hearts, and a worldview that sees everything in the presence of God? and possibility, and has meaning. These are the challenges for us all, I think. Here at Jan Hus, there are still strong feelings, for example, of the glory days. Who doesn't like glory days? When this was a hub of a larger membership and grander dreams, a time that followed different glory days of the early immigrant Czech community that filled this church in this city at times still lamented by people who will come to visit and look at the bulletin and on the back say, there are no Czech names here. Yes, it is a time, there are now, that's right. It is a time that is still lamented as being gone and sometimes hoped for in some way to get back. But this church is no longer in either of those times or the times in between. For those times have passed for us and for everyone. Germany, Germantown is gone. The polo grounds are gone. Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia are gone. Living on the streets is no longer, never was, never will be safe. The illusion is gone. The real work here is hard work, but that does not mean that it is neither joyful nor faithful. It does not mean that we need to look back see where we were and move forward. It does mean that. It means we need to look back and see where we were and move forward without trying to capture what once was. For if we do that, we will be where we are and what we are without any chance of becoming what it is we're supposed to become. It's hard. You know, when Moses asked God, on that day where the bush was burning, Moses said, God, God, tell me your name so I can tell people what to call you. What did, what did God say? What was God's name on that day? God said, I am. No, Popeye said, I am what I am. God said, I am. God said, I am. We have a lot of work to do around here. Somebody make a note of that. We have to... God said, I am. God didn't say, I was. God didn't say, well, I might be. God didn't say, I'm over here, I'm over there. God said, I am. So perhaps the question for this epiphany is, am I? Am I here? Am I present? Am I free of the past? Am I all in in what needs to be done? Am I willing to heed the call? Am I? Only you can say.